and welcome to today's episode of Tranquil Awakenings with me, Debbie Ison. On today's episode, I will be in conversation with Susan Kenley, who is a psychologist, and she will be talking about her personal journey of how her body started attacking itself, and through that, how she had to delve into her childhood and her life experiences to learn about herself and to allow herself to heal. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you ever so much for being here with me today. So I think we met about a year ago. Yeah. And I started to become aware a little bit of you've had a really fascinating journey. And I know a little bit about it, but I thought I want to know more. And also I think it would be really beneficial and really helpful for our listeners to hear your story. So thank you ever so much for being here. Perfect. Brilliant. Nice to be here. So you are a trained psychologist. I am. Yeah. I graduated in 2000. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And what made you want to be a psychologist? <laughs> well, when they often say that the people who become psychologists are the ones who need it the most. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think that there's a, there's a truth in that. Um, but actually, it was I almost fell into it, if I'm, if I'm honest. I, were, I actually wanted to be a, a cosmologist. Oh, what? I don't know what a cosmologist it's, uh, is. <laughs> it's someone who studies the universe, wow. uh, the evolution of the universe. And um, but I had a very, very disjointed childhood. Okay. I went to about, um, I think it was 13 or 14 different schools oh, across four or five different countries. And I ended up leaving school at 14 mm-hmm. and going to work in the city. Oh, gosh. Um, pretending I was older than I was. <laughs> um, and because I'd been educated abroad, I could also, I wouldn't have the equivalent UK qualification. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got away with it. But it became very clear that I needed to get some proper qualifications. Yep. And so I just did uh, an English A-level and a psychology A-level. And I did those because you could do those correspondence course All right. while you work. Huh? Um, and then I went to the university and tried to get into the cosmology course. And they said to me, but you haven't got any maths, you haven't got any physics, yeah. you haven't got any science. Um, but there's a fantastic psychology department right over there. And um, I, I actually was in two minds about whether to do it, but it turned out to be the best thing I could have done because the whole degree was fascinating. Uh-huh. And I, um, I did sort of specialise in consciousness and evolution of intelligence in animals and humans, mm-hmm. uh, genetics, all of that sort of stuff. So I did stay on the science side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm still learning even now. Absolutely. And I think life's all about learning, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. So when you did that qualification, where did it take you next? So I was um, working at the time as a paralegal um, okay. and a court preparation. Uh, I used to run a court preparation centre up in London, so nothing to do with uh, psychology at all. But um, as I was doing my degree, I was working at night in in the law firm still, but in IT support. And so I, I ended up with this strange job when, when I graduated, which was still doing IT, but also being a corporate psychologist. Oh, wow. Um, because there's a big link between IT and psychology training. Uh-huh. And when you're rolling out uh, complicated IT systems, you need to know how the people are going to react to it and what pace to go and how what words to mm-hmm. use to make them feel safe and to take the stress out. So... So I juggled, um, I guess, a um, 
both of those streams yeah. for quite a long time uh, until I essentially got very, very ill because because of it, because mm-hmm. of doing two jobs. And at that point, everything stopped. And then from then on, it's been psychology only. So obviously, you said you got very ill. What yeah. happened? So I was running a department of about 100 people. I was doing all of the psychology side of it. So I was dealing with people who, who were, as you can imagine, in the corporate world, anxious and stressed, mm-hmm. basically. Although you did see quite a lot of um, other other things, um, you know, addictions, very, very common in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in the city are doing, you know, stuff just to keep them awake and to keep them alert. So and there was a lot of um, dealing with addiction. But at the same time, I was running the IT department. God. And um, I think, you know, as a, you know, somebody who, who treats people, it's sometimes it's very hard to shake off mm-hmm. other people's pain, particularly yeah. if you're empathic. Uh-huh. And because I was not having a chance, I think, to do that, because the minute I was stopping there, I was going and dealing with the IT department. Mm-hmm. I think I just uh, got to the stage where it all just became too much and my immune system uh, basically completely failed in as much as it started just losing the ability to distinguish between my own body and the things that it should be um, destroying. So it started destroying my own body Gosh. and it did it. Um, I, I mean, it hit me like a, a freight train. Mm-hmm. It was a very sudden thing, although, of course, there must have been a build-up, which I was just repressing. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it... Uh, it started in my eyes. I started getting blisters on my eyeballs, which oh was incredibly mm. bad. And then from there, uh, within just a couple of months, it had spread to my t- intestines, liver, my joints, um, I developed fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. um, lupus. Uh, um, I think at one point I was diagnosed with 15 different autoimmune. Uh, Gosh, so really, really poorly. Really, very, very um, Polly, I mean, very close to death, um, and uh, some of my organs, which were being attacked, um, you know, they had got to the point where anymore, and 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 they wouldn't be able to come back, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was put on chemotherapy, which you you know to try and knock out my immune system, yeah, as well as incredibly high dose steroids, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, I think within the space of two years, I went from eight stone to 18 and a half stone. Mm-hmm. I was on oh, morphine and various different codeine-based uh, painkillers, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicine, just, just to keep me going. Sounds horrendous. Yeah, anything to try and bring down the stress mm-hmm. so that my immune system would be able to stop. Yes. Um, and the stress was anything physical stress mental stress and emotional stress mm-hmm. because we are, we normally only think of emotional stress don't we but actually even physical stress was enough to trigger off an episode Gosh. so i pretty much lived in bed for 3 years um and i i don't really remember much of those 3 years because i was so heavily medicated and then i, I as things began to resolve a little bit I took the decision to try and come off of everything that was clouding my mind God. because I thought I've lost my body, but I'd really like to get my mind mm-hmm. back. And 
yeah, when I became clear-headed, and it, it was almost like looking around and going, oh, my God, what on earth has happened? You know, I've, really, yeah. I've got a body I don't recognise. Um, I obviously couldn't do the career that um, I'd been doing and working towards for all those years. Um, I was very fit before, very active and a dancer. Of course, I couldn't do that anymore. And I, it was a, a case of literally starting again from scratch. Gosh. Uh, so of course you you learn a lot about yourself <laughs> when you do that. Absolutely. Um, I was housebound for two years after the the bed bound, so mm-hmm. five years altogether I couldn't leave the house because of course I didn't have an immune system. What? Uh, and so I had two years of pretty much just self reflection and and also studying what had happened to me and why. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so what made you think, actually, do you know what I'm going to study? I'm going to learn about this. I think it's in my nature anyway. Um, and I think because of the psychology aspect, of course, I'd been dealing with stress and anxiety and, uh, you know, was very aware that it, that it did affect the immune system. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I was trying to find... Uh, a cure, I guess, or maybe not a cure, but a way to get myself out of this hole. Yeah. And um, because what happens when you when you get multiple illnesses like that, you have you see one specialist for the for the intestines, one for the thyroid, one for the <laughs> but none of them speak to each other, mm-hmm. and there's no overarching um, person who looks at, at the big picture, yeah. no holistic mm-hmm. view, and uh, I I thought well I need to I really need to absolutely and um, eventually I asked to be referred to something called a psychoneuroimmunologist, mm-hmm. which is a long a word which basically means somebody who looks at how the psychology stress essentially um, affects the nervous system and therefore your immune system. Yep. Um, with my own research and then talking to him, I I really managed to put a picture together of why it had happened you know and and interestingly I realized that um a lot of it was to do with my childhood uh-huh. because uh, the incidence of people who've had traumatic childhoods going on to develop immune system problems is it's a huge correlation high. isn't there exactly which was something I wasn't aware of mm-hmm. before so of course in this time of self-reflection and building myself up I was also looking back to the past and you know what had happened to me to cause all of this so that's a really brave thing to do when you're feeling well to start reflecting back on the past and unpicking it all but when you're at rock bottom and really poorly as well you must have had sort of a real resilience and inner fight somewhere within the core of your being to be able to do that yeah I think it was either that or just give in to it and just you know become one of these people who just sits at home all day watching you know daytime tv and mm-hmm. that I just have not got that yeah and and also I think if I'm honest there was also a, a an element of trying to get some control of my situation mm-hmm. which was the situation was entirely out of my yes. control but at least by researching it understanding it trying to think of ways that could ameliorate uh, what had happened to me it gave me back a little sense that I was back in control, mm-hmm. a little bit at yeah. least, you know. 
Because it's very scary when you're very ill like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even as someone who was very well informed and well read and had done a degree, you know, you know, all of that is stripped away when you're in this hospital. You, you're not feeling well. You've got people talking about things which you've never heard of before. Mm -hmm. You don't really understand what's happening. And you're very much treated like um, you're not a human. It's very dehumanizing. Yeah. And some of the exams, like especially the internal exams and so on, they're very dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I had to find some way to, to bring it back to self again. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, f I really, really feel for people who aren't able to do that. I don't think people realize how scary it is to be ill. Yes. You know? It's really terrifying, isn't it? It's horrible for people. I mean, I remember one one test they did because my at the time my adrenal glands were one of the things which were affected, mm -hmm. and it's your adrenal glands that deal with cortisol in your body. Yep. And um, I went and sat down in a nice comfortable chair in this hospital room, and they took some blood tests, mm -hmm. and then they just shot me full of pure cortisol, and. They were coming back and taking blood every half an hour, and the idea was to see if my adrenal glands were still able to deal with cortisol. But, um, I, I mean, you were sitting in this chair with your heart beating, with your, yeah. everything inside you saying, you know, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just this such a, a weird um, and, and frightening experience. And, and almost you almost had to detach from yeah. what was happening because, of course, you couldn't run or fight. Mm -hmm. um, so things like that, I don't think perhaps um, the medical people understand exactly how it feels to be a patient. And a lot of it's not explained very well because I think to them it's a procedure and they've got X amount of people to see in a day and it's, it's a job to do. Absolutely. But when you're a human being at the other end of it, even having that bit of compassion and the simplistic understanding of what it means in human terms, taking it down to the most basics, even if they'd sat and told you, do you know what? We're going to be putting this hormone in you. Yeah. It's what normally makes you feel really stressed and really anxious. So you are probably going to feel these things in your body, mm. but this is what happened. Just often that isn't done, is it? They often just do Absolutely what they're going to do and not. don't and, tell you. And of course, I mean, they are so overworked. Yeah. And, and, and you know, compassion fatigue is a real thing. Oh, absolutely. For, for nurses and doctors and... and uh, I don't blame them for it at all, but I do think the system is not geared up with very much empathy in mind. Yes, I completely agree. I went to one rheumatologist who um, basically told me, well, you're very overweight, so it's probably not helping your situation. And I, I thought, well, yeah, but two years ago I was at eight stone. <laughs> yes. You know, things like that. And I remember I'm, I'm a very, very strong person, and I remember I just sat in that office and just burst into tears because... I was just at the end of my my rope, really. Yeah. Um. So yeah, things like that. It made it tough. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was good to come out the other side. And it's amazing. So if you come across you in the street or when I speak to you, you wouldn't have any awareness that you'd ever been that poorly. Yeah. So it's remarkable what you've done to get yourself back on your feet. Yeah, and and I I wonder as well whether. I would have ever looked at my childhood in the way I did if mm -hmm. I hadn't been as poorly. And, and also, I was, I would say, probably workaholic. I mean, I was yeah. definitely, I've got an addictive personality anyway, and everything was about work. Mm -hmm. and, and again, in a way, it's done me a favour in that 
I mean, it's very hard to start again from scratch, but isn't it wonderful to be able to build yourself up in the way yes. that feels authentic to you as an adult, mm -hmm. you know? So, but um, one of the things which I found out that was that when you have a traumatic childhood mm -hmm. um, and your flight or fight system uh, or freeze or please, as we also mm -hmm. say now, for, which is more how women react. Yes. Um, you know, it's coming on and off, on and off, on mm -hmm. and off. And in the end, your body says, let's just be efficient and keep this permanently on. Yes. And from that point on, you are always very prone to trauma response very mm -hmm. quickly because you have much more, uh, you're, you're always in fight or flight, basically. Yep. And it's very, very hard to turn that off. Mm -hmm. And that's why people with traumatic childhoods are more prone to these sort of illnesses as they get older. Yeah. You know, so acknowledging to myself that I had really had an abusive childhood, that mm -hmm. took me a very, very long time because you don't want to admit that to yourself. And there's a lot then to unpick, isn't there? Because as, when you've had that circumstance, I think when you're a child, some part of you often ends up internalising and blaming yourself, even though in reality 100%. that's not true, but it ends up with guilt, blame, shame, regret, remorse, all these other emotions that compound it all. Absolutely. And they then start yeah. to impact all other areas of your life going forwards. Yeah, and that, it's really interesting that you bring that up because some of the ways which we're meant to deal with these traumatic uh, situations, I feel actually make the shame worse. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, one of the Zen ways of looking at life is to sort of try and say, oh, no, I'm fine, I, I've forgiven everything, I've accepted everything, and um, really you haven't. No. So what, what you're actually doing is repressing the mm -hmm. feelings and telling yourself that they're wrong. Yes. And that is terrible. If, if somebody's been in a situation, either a childhood or a, a relationship or even with a work colleague where they're constantly told they're wrong, mm -hmm. I think one of the worst things they can then do is tell themselves as well that yep. their feelings are wrong. Mm -hmm. Because it always comes out, as you say, as shame generally. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things I learned. I've been, as a corporate psychologist, telling people you know, you need to find this place of Zen, do your deep breathing, be calm. Like, and I hadn't really realised that what I was telling those people is repress your feelings. Mm -hmm. um, they're not valid, essentially, yep. or, or at least you shouldn't be feeling like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I very much don't do that to myself anymore, and it's changed the way that I, you know, help other people. Amazing. So what do you do then when you're helping people? Now, I am um, a real believer now that you sit with those feelings, you acknowledge them. You know, I think um, we always act as if, oh, well, you know, these terrible things have happened to you, but you can go to therapy and it will all be all right. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's actually true. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes things are so traumatizing that they, they literally change your, your physiology. Yes. They change your neurochemicals. Mm -hmm. Um, you have very strong neural pathways related yeah. to these traumatic mm -hmm. events. Um, I think it's so much healthier to say, yes, it happened. Yes. And it, and it will probably never go away. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is give you these all these amazing tools so that every time you start thinking about it or feeling about it, 
you can acknowledge it and then move on. Yeah. I think that's so much healthier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I think when we completely repress anything that's happened to us, anything traumatic, we're not actually, we can't just get rid of it and pretend it's not there. It's going to come out in one way or another. So it's either yeah. going to come out as an inappropriate emotional outburst at the most inconvenient time, mm. or your body's going to become poorly because it's holding on to an energy that isn't helpful to it. Yeah. And also it, it leads to you really not fully liking yourself, yeah. not fully loving yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think if you don't love yourself, you, you close the doors to so many things that, that you could have otherwise. Yeah. You know, healthy relationships, mm -hmm. you know, creativity, um, maybe career changes. You know, a lot of people who don't like themselves don't live an authentic life. Yes. And, and I find that so often, just people I talk to in day-to-day -day life as well as clients that are unhappy in their marriage, they're unhappy in their job, they don't even express themselves in the way that they would like to express themselves. And I think, what a shame yeah. that you're going through these motions and you're deeply unhappy, but also it means you can't give the best to everyone and everything else around you if you're not being authentic. Yeah. And then you listen to, you know, uh, these uh, recordings or stuff saying, it's fine, just be zen, just push it down, just don't think about it, just mm -hmm. breathe you. You know, I just, yeah, so, I, and forgiveness is, is another thing which I've really changed my mind mm -hmm. on um, because um, I've spent a lot of my life kidding myself that I've forgiven, you know, uh, my parents and other people who have traumatised me and it just wasn't true. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't true and um, there's this, this big thing that unless you forgive, you can't move on. And again, I just think what what you're saying to people then is is that you know you're stuck forever mm -hmm. pretending that you've forgiven, otherwise you can't yeah. have a life. Mm -hmm. And that, that is exactly what I did for yeah. years and years and years. And again, I've had to come to the conclusion that sometimes people do things which are so bad that you can't forgive them. Yeah. Know? And it, I mean, it's a bit like if you eat a poisoned berry. Mm -hmm. You know, next time you see that berry, your brain is screaming to you, don't eat the berry. Yeah. You know, whereas if somebody's done something really awful to you um, and you're saying, no, no, it's fine. I know it's a poison berry, but, you know, I'll take away all the feelings telling me not to eat it again. Mm -hmm. That's how that's how I see it, really. Yeah. Um, and then your conscious mind is saying, no, it's fine. I've forgiven it. It's absolutely fine. And yeah. the two it causes cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. essentially where you're holding two opposing views in, in, your, in your mind and that always causes mental and emotional stress. Yes. Until you resolve those two. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's the thing, in our society we're not taught how to resolve those things. We're not no. given the skills how to deal with that because we can have that for tiny little issues that occur in life but also really huge things that have happened to us. Mm -hmm. And it can leave people feeling very fragmented and very incomplete. And yet then we're just in the world having to deal with it without any support, knowing what we're meant to do to help ourselves, to help each other, and I think that's a real shame. Yeah, absolutely, because it, in accepting that you don't forgive someone, but, but accepting the situation, I, I talk about acceptance mm -hmm. now instead of forgiveness. Yes. You know, um, it, you can still learn the lessons, you can still learn, okay, I'll never go into, for instance, a narcissistic relationship again mm -hmm. because I know the size of it because I haven't forgiven that person. Yeah. 
but I have accepted it. You know, you can mm-hmm. learn the lessons. Yeah. You can protect yourself from it happening again. Mm-hmm. And then I think you really can move on. And on the other hand, I think there's a real danger if you forgive people who have really hurted you of just repeating the same situation yep. again mm-hmm. because in your mind you've convinced yourself that it's okay, it wasn't that bad, I forgive them. Uh-huh. You know? And that's something like my husband's pointed out to me sometimes. I can often tend to minimise other people's behaviours even though they've done something really horrible or awful yeah. or I end up automatically turn it to myself of what have I done wrong, what could I have done differently? And yes, yes. there's learning in it, but that's different of learning and what could I change in a positive way to sort of that beating yourself up and diminishing anyone else's responsibility? And that's something I've really had to learn over the years, that to hold other people accountable as well as myself. Yeah, because there's this view, isn't there, that if you don't forgive them, then you're not a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, there must be something wrong with you. Yeah. And that, it's mean, just not the case. Isn't that unhealthy mm. to people who've already been traumatised, already had something terrible to happen to them? And then you tell them that there's something even more wrong with them because they won't just let it go. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really valid point. So obviously you started looking at your childhood and you're like, how did that start to change you as a person? Well, first of all, knowledge, just understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and... I think, as I said, that acceptance that, wow, this actually was really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And no wonder I do things that sometimes I don't understand or behave in extreme ways out mm-hmm. of the blue. You know, who wouldn't? I think that was really a big step for me. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, acknowledging that it had also made me very ill and, and my immune system will never be normal again. Mm-hmm. It's okay now. It's stable. But... I will never be somebody who can deal with high-stress environments again, mm-hmm. physical, mental or emotional, you know. And so I have, to, I have to acknowledge that my broken immune system from my childhood and then the adult stress mm-hmm. will be with me forever. Yeah. You know, it's things like that, that it's that knowledge and that being able to reframe your life in a way that you can still go ahead with all of those lessons, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. I mean, I um, I had a very, very botched operation in uh, 2019. So what happened with your operation? Um, well, um, where I had put on so much weight um, during my illness and then, of course, lost some of it, <laughs> <laughs> about five and a half to six stone I lost afterwards, um, I had a lot of loose skin, okay. but I'd also developed a metabolic disorder called lipedema where um, fat was crystallising in the cells and causing these weird lumps. Oh, gosh. So um, I went to have a tummy tuck, essentially, and mm-hmm. also to have some of these fat lumps removed. And I went to a lady who I'd known for 20 years, mm-hmm. who I considered a friend, in fact, um, and she had teamed up with this so-called surgeon. Right. She's in the aesthetics business, and mm-hmm. she had teamed up with this surgeon, and they were offering tummy tucks. And um, to cut a long story short, it turned out that the surgeon was just a GP and that they were both experimenting on living people. 
I was oh. the third person that they did it to. I met the two other people that they'd done before me. And they were just giving it a go. <laughs> That's horrendous. You yeah. can't believe anyone would do that. Working out how to how to do these operations so that they could make money. Um, and uh, But because they were so inexperienced, they gave me a fatal level dose of the anaesthetic. Um, so I went under at about 10 a.m. in the morning expecting to, you know, wake up at uh, one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon and I woke up at nearly midnight I'd been under for 14 hours um on a sofa in a strange house um and what it seems had happened um was that I was in a medical facility it was a GP surgery downstairs mm -hmm. in this this lady's medical facility upstairs where she does Botox and filler and stuff like mm -hmm. that and um when they had realised that I wasn't waking up, mm -hmm. and I think they, I do think they thought I was going to die, um, they got me out of there because they didn't want anybody to know that someone had died in their facility. So instead of taking me to intensive care where I should have been on heart monitors and, yeah. and oxygen and so on, um, literally one of their boyfriends, firemen, lifted me you know, over his shoulder, and they put me in a car whilst I was in a coma, dislocated two of my ribs doing that, and uh, smashed my, you know, the cannula they put into mm -hmm. the hand. That got smashed into my hand, so my my arm was swollen for three months because of that. Crushed one of my drains and ripped the other one out of my body. And I, I, I my only explanation I can think of for them basically not caring about that is because they didn't think I was going to wake up. That's horrendous. Yeah. So I woke up at, I think it was about 11.40. There were kids running around. I was on the sofa and I actually woke up to one of the kids saying, she's waking up, she's waking up. And I was so confused. I had no idea where, where I was, what, you know, I, it was night time. I and of course, I was, I'd been given a, a fatal level overdose of anaesthetics. So I was also not really in my, yeah. my mind. It was really, really disorientating and scary. Mm. And, and then, of course, uh, it comes of no surprise that um, they'd also really botched the operation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's been a big court case going on, uh, which is now resolved. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm uh, in talks with the GMC. Right, okay, yep. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it took me, as I say, numerous revision operations. That's horrendous. To, yeah, and I think the worst thing about it was that she was somebody I trusted. And I, mm -hmm. at the time, I had just uh, lost my marriage and my mother and became estranged from my father, so I was incredibly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd not long been ill as well. And... Um, I put my trust in this woman yeah. and because we were friends, not only did she know that I was very, very vulnerable, she also knew I didn't have anybody who would miss me if I didn't come back. That's awful, isn't it? Because then it makes, like, oh, I mean, it's not even, oh, it's horrendous. Like, what yeah. would have happened if you died? It's murder, isn't it, at that point? It, yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. That was That's the question that I, I've still asked myself. Um, you know, I 
as soon as I came up there, I mean, I changed my will. I made provisions for my animals because I got I have cats, and I just thought, you know, no one would have fed them. What, what would have even happened to their cat? No, there was nobody would have known, uh, and I, and they knew. You so, just can't believe these things actually happen. No, it's and really I, awful. I equate it to almost like a like a date rape drug in a way. Uh-huh. In as much as I will never know what actually happened in that period of time, and the the two the the so called surgeon and my friend, their accounts differ. Okay. Um, and the likelihood is both neither of them are actually given the full account. So I have this missing uh, part of my life where I was butchered essentially, mm-hmm. which I'll never actually know. You know, and, and so we, we were talking about acceptance. This is something I've had to accept. Not forgive. I'll no. just forgive, but accept, you know. I hope yeah. they do get struck up yeah, because that too. is horrendous. <laughs> like, it just should never happen, should it? No. You just, I don't know. I, I, I'm lost for words. It's not very often that happens. I'm just, I'm, yeah, no. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's a, It's been a good exercise in practising all of the good things I've been telling you about. Yeah. But, you know, changing your perspective on things to uh, make them positive, but still accepting that a bad things happen and and, and not repressing it, uh-huh. but allowing yourself to be really kind of. I was really angry for quite a while. Bless you. Yeah. Well done for obviously putting things in place. One to hold them accountable and to yeah. hopefully move things positively. I don't the want them to do it to anybody else. Yeah. Bless you. Um, I mean, it was a very very horrific situation and when I came out of it I had to go to a therapist myself Mm -hmm. to um, get over what had happened but also of course everything comes up again from the childhood and stuff and we've worked um, quite on a lot on something called a reality tunnel and I I don't know if you use that in your work but it's a way of reframing your life in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you could have um, two people who both have a minor car crash. Yep. You know, one person's reality tunnel will be, oh, God, I'm so unlucky. Why do these Mm -hmm. things always happen to me? You know, this is just another example of how terrible my life is. And then you can have another person whose reality tunnel may be, oh, my God, I'm so lucky. That could have been so much worse. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel so blessed that I've come out of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, it's the, that concept of reframing everything in a more positive mm-hmm. way. And I, that, I really try and do that all the time. That's amazing. And I think when you are able to reframe things, it allows you to have a sort of level of peace with things and a level of acceptance that probably you wouldn't have if you're sticking with that, maybe that rigid viewpoint of things being against you, unhelpful, the world's a difficult place. Yeah, because then that makes you perceive everything that's going on around you as hard, difficult, overwhelming. Yeah. So I think that ability to change your perception is really key to improving health and well-being. Yeah, and it's made me really think a lot about the concept of luck, mm-hmm. because I used to think of myself as a very unlucky person uh-huh. because I had had a lot of bad things happen to me. Um. Now that I have got a reality tunnel that's much more positive, mm-hmm. I, I'm able to look back and think, or take, take accountability for the fact that I actually probably put myself in some of those situations. Yeah. Not through any fault of my own, but because I had you no know, confidence, because I was a people pleaser, mm-hmm. 
um, you know, be, because I didn't want other people to be uh, inconvenienced or yeah. upset. And uh, you end up as a person who will inadvertently put yourself in really unlucky situations because yes. you've gone off with some bad person and they've done bad things, yeah. for instance, mm -hmm. you know. And then conversely, you know, if you see yourself as a lucky person, if you're open and, um, you know, uh, you allow positive things in your life, so many doors open for you. And yeah. in both situations, you've created mm -hmm. your own luck. Yes. Either the bad luck or the good mm -hmm. luck, you know. So I'm very much of the mindset now that, of course, bad things ha sometimes yeah. happen out of the blue. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that happens to everybody. Yeah. But I really believe you can create luckier situations. Absolutely, because you take different opportunities, don't you? You notice things around you. You see yeah. things in a completely different way. Yeah, you meet more positive people and then they have positive things that you get involved in. And, mm -hmm. and it just snowballs, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, it's exponential. The positivity is exponential. Absolutely. You know? Whereas, I mean, I look back on some of the things that have happened to me and I can take accountability for the fact that probably I I I kind of caused those yeah you know but with the uh, always allowing myself um the fact that it wasn't my fault you know you can yeah. still take accountability for something without putting that blame and shame having compassion for yourself isn't it yeah. because I think we ultimately do the best we can with the skills knowledge and life experience we've had at the time yeah. and if you've had a really difficult childhood and lots of traumatic situations that's going to have really distorted your mindset your knowledge your skill set that you've got available to you which is then going to have an influence on everything else that comes after that yeah exactly and you can you can totally see how you get these you know, violence perpetuated or abuse per perpetuated mm -hmm. because, you know, these people's reality tunnels is nothing but this violence and abuse and so therefore that is what they project out into the world. Yes. And I think it, you, it takes, you have to actively take control of mm -hmm. your reality tunnel. And I, I mean, I, as a psychologist, had the weird experience of having therapy myself for about six months. Yeah. And, um, you know, learning all these things that w when you're the healer, mm -hmm. sometimes you, you forget that there's broken bits inside yeah. you too. And that you're sort of learning all these things that were lingering from, you know, 30, 40 years before mm -hmm. and then having this toolkit to actually be able to fix them. You yeah. know, it's very liberating. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important, isn't it, to recognise that no matter what sort of profession or background or life experience we've had, it is always beneficial to get that external help and support when we need it. And I wish yeah. people would sort of, and I think we are moving in the right direction in our country now. Um, I'd like the idea eventually that going to a therapist isn't taboo. It's as normal as going to see a doctor or a dentist or any other practitioner that is about maintaining your health and well-being. And it's about clearing stuff that you don't need to allow more positives that you do need to come in. Yeah, and... I mean, I was listening to a statistic this morning that suicide um, is now the leading cause of death in men under 40. And I, 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 it was something, it's very greatly in, uh, increased over the pandemic. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
And I think for men in particular, they, they need to feel okay about talking about their feelings, basically. Yeah. Um, I do, I, not that all women can do it easily either, but mm-hmm. I do feel there's a stigma still with men. And I, certainly when I was doing corporate psychology, you know, the men normally only came to speak to me when they were pretty much on the verge of a breakdown. Yep. Whereas the women w- would come sooner. Mm-hmm. And then, you know. And I think I find that as well. I have quite a lot of, well, I have a lot of friends in general, but I have a lot of male friends as well. And often I found that, and one of my friends recently came to me and he's gone through some awful stuff more recently in his life. And me being the therapist, I try not to therapize my friends, but I could just see he wasn't okay. And so I just asked him a few key questions and it got him chatting about it. Mm. And then he said, you know what? Thank you for this. Mm. He said, I've got lots of people in my life. He says, but if I see any of my mates, they tend to have a laugh, have a joke about it, take the mick out of each other, repress it, suppress it, let's move it out of the way. And he says, I haven't had anyone to talk to for the last couple of years about this. Thank you. And I think we really need to be opening up that dialogue. And I think it really got me thinking about it a few years ago. So when my oldest daughter was little, she used to have a really good friend at school. So they're about six at the time. They used to call each other boyfriend and girlfriend. And they didn't mean it in any sort of romantic way. Yeah. But then other children started to tease them about Mm. it. So all of a sudden, the little boy became conscious of that and he didn't want to be boyfriend and girlfriend, but then he distanced himself completely from my daughter, Mm. which was understandable when they get that peer pressure. But at such a young age, that doesn't come from those children who previously had got on harmoniously together. That comes from adults and other influences. And I just remember my daughter saying to me, like, Mummy, why can't I be friends with a boy? And I was like, I don't know. I don't understand that. You can, of course you can. You can be friends with anyone you want. We're all souls having a human experience. Yeah. But I thought, do you know what? Even at that young age, they're already being taught that you don't talk about your stuff that's going on. You don't interact with other people or have meaningful connections Mm. because of how other people construe it from the external world. And all those sort of social and societal norms start to put those restrictions in place. And I thought, do you know what? This is really hard for everybody, but particularly for men. Because if they're being brought up in a culture where they can't openly talk, it's this just jokey, laddie culture. Mm. They're not allowed to interact with females unless they're either married to them or having an affair with them or something like that. Mm. Who do they talk to? Where do they go when they need that emotional support? And I'd just love to see it change. I would love it that we could live in a society where we just all treated each other as individuals regardless of the bodies that we were in. Yeah. And we were able to express what we need to to help heal and grow. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's not very many positive role models in there for that for men. No. I think things are changing slowly, but I just wish there was more yeah. out there. I think um, COVID as well, um, particularly the guy that I've been, who was my therapist who I now work with, um, he was saying that these red pill um, YouTube videos now, these anti-women, misogynistic, um, he clicked on one to see what it was all about um, and was totally disgusted. And, and But now that's all he gets because of the algorithms. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, with, with COVID making everybody isolated and not having anyone to talk mm-hmm. to and then turning to social media where you have these algorithms that just reinforce these negative 
views i mean you can see how it gets dangerous can't you yeah and this is really difficult because obviously we all have our own perceptions of reality anyway mm. based on our backgrounds and our life experiences mm. we've got those like you say reality tunnels we've got those filters already but then even the information we're coming across because it's so easily available on social media mm. now that once again is further distorting our realities because it yeah. it shapes us rather than us letting have access to everything to find out what's right for us yeah. And I think, like you say, that, that's quite scary in some ways. Yeah, you lose all, all balance. You lose, you know, there's one side and then there's the other side because the algorithms will just keep on taking you all the way down just one side mm -hmm. and won't even acknowledge that there's anything, you know. Yeah. On the other side, I mean, tribalism is becoming rife, isn't it, in, mm -hmm. every, in every sector yeah. of our lives. Yeah. And I just find that really strange because it's not, part of the the world that I live in I think my mm. reality tool actually we're very much about community collaboration yeah. understanding each other accepting each other and also that idea that in order to learn and grow you need to have different perspectives other than your own you need to have that neuroplasticity and that flexibility yeah and we don't teach it no we don't no I I um, have got very much back into dancing again and I've uh, just put on a show mm-hmm and uh, we, I had a collaboration of all the Lincolnshire dance groups. There was about 30 of us on stage. And they'd learnt this dance either some on, online, some in workshops, mm -hmm. some in classes. And we all came together and it was Amazing. lovely just to have that community, uh -huh. like you say. that I think we were just missing that, aren't we? Absolutely. So what got you back into the dancing then? Well, when I, I danced a lot as a kid mm -hmm. and looking back now, I see that it was my only sort of form of escape, really. It was yeah. to, when you're dancing and you're dancing seriously, you mm -hmm. can't think about any of your stresses. Yeah. All you can think about is what is my body doing? What, mm -hmm. what, you know, what are my feet doing? So it's, it, it's a very good for clearing your head dance. And yeah. Interestingly enough, my, my father was very much the leader of the house. And my mum kind of just did whatever she was told. Mm -hmm. But the one thing she put her foot down about was taking me to dance lessons. Right. Uh, my father didn't want me to go. Mm -hmm. and um, But my mum was an incredible dancer mm -hmm. and singer. My my man was a uh, competition ballroom dancer. And my great-grandmother was a professional dancer. So mm -hmm. it's in the blood. Yeah. And I was dancing uh, literally before I could walk. I was in dance oh, lessons from about one and a half. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. And um, so when I was ill, mm -hmm. see, I my father had constantly said, it's a waste of time. Why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing this. You should be doing something better, more intellectual, you mm -hmm. know. So I had very mixed views about dancing and I used to hide it. I used to actually hide it from people that I did it. Because I sort of saw it as a, a, something to be ashamed mm -hmm. of, you know, isn't yeah. it terrible? But after I'd been ill and I'd had these five years and I sort of emerged back out into the world like a, like a butterfly coming <laughs> out of its cocoon, um, it just so happened that my local gym was, uh, had a, dance, a belly dance class. Wow. And um, I walked in there and I was just like, oh, my God, I'm, it's like dancing is like a balm to my soul. Mm. you know in psychology we talk about everybody having a stress bucket you know and yeah you know little stresses build up and up until the bucket's full mm -hmm. and we talk about um you know making holes in the bucket yeah so that the stress 
and dancing puts holes in my pocket, oh. you know. Um, I just love it. And mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, I got very much into it and became a teacher. Now wow. I run my own uh, dance class. I'm a stalled dancer now as well. That's amazing. Um, and it's uh, it's escapism. It's community. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a hobby. It's something to pour your passion into mm-hmm. that isn't intellectual. Um, there's so many things to me. And I, I, even now, there's still a little voice in my head saying, this is a waste of time. Why are you doing this? But now I just say to it, shut up. <laughs> this is this is so not a waste mm-hmm. of time. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's so good for your neurochemistry with yeah. all the endorphins and stuff. You know, it keeps you physically fit. And there's so many benefits to it, you know. And I, and I've seen so many women, you know, come to you because belly dance is all about women's health. Really. Yeah. You know, come come to belly dance and just find their their confidence. Mm-hmm. Find uh, a lot of uh, women have found it really helps their body. Um, you know, like uh, I've had people with endometriosis and it's helped the pain mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. So, yeah, it's just wonderful. And um, I c- I think I'll be dancing until. You know, I'm 80 years old. That's amazing. And I have had 70-year-old ladies um, in my class. Brilliant. In fact, I used to help teach a better dance class for over 65s, and there was a, there was an 80-year-old <laughs> yeah. lady in there, you know, and they got dressed up, felt great, had their community, and, mm-hmm. you know. How lovely. And I know several ladies that have been doing your belly dancing oh, classes and Zinni came on the podcast uh, uh-huh. um, just a couple of weeks ago yeah. her podcast has been released today yeah and she just said how brilliant it's been for her oh, and also that community of bringing that group of individuals together and yeah. how it's benefited them emotionally and physically and yeah. it's created profound differences so it's definitely very worthwhile not only for you but for the other people whose lives it's touching yeah, it's so nice to know that you're spreading the joy of dance. And I recently put all of my instruction videos on YouTube for free mm-hmm. just because I just want to spread that, that joy, Yeah, you know. Um, and, yeah, we also do lots and lots of shows, so there's always something to work towards, something to mm-hmm. look forward to, costumes and yeah. glitter and oh, nice. all those <laughs> sort of girly things that I'm, I've learned, you know, now that I'm a proper grown-up woman, that is okay. Yeah. I never would let, allow myself to do those things as, mm-hmm. a, as an actual girl. Yeah. <laughs> but now I, I see it as okay, so, yeah. Amazing. And I know... For me, dance has been very, very transformative because I think Mm. I was very shy as a child and as a teenager and obviously quite repressed in sort of my emotions, my feelings, my thoughts, who I was, but also probably in my body. Mm, And I remember going out as a teenager. So we used to go out, me and my friends, at 15 years old into nightclubs. And I have no idea how I got into nightclubs at 15 because... Mm. I did not look old enough to be in a nightclub. girls girls do, don't they? Yeah, but... um, I felt so uncomfortable dancing and then that got sort of, one of my friends said to me one day, she's like, oh, your, your dance is really unnatural and uncomfortable. Oh, and thanks. it just made me shrink into <laughs> yeah, myself even I more. And imagine. I didn't dance for a long time. Yeah. Or if I did, I had to get very, very drunk yeah. to do that. But then when I was decided to have children, I stopped drinking and I haven't drank alcohol for about 14 years now. Yeah. Um, and I thought, do you know what? I like dancing. Mm. I feel it's a form of self-expression. But it was really scary to do that. I thought, well, do you know what? If I want to dance, I'm going to have to do it without any alcohol in my system because Mm. that's not my lifestyle choice anymore. And so I had to reframe it. It was going back to that reframe. Mm. And I thought, do you know what? I'm in this situation. I've gone to a wedding, I think. 
I thought there's all these people around. I thought most of them will be busy in their own conversations anyway. They won't even notice what I'm doing. Mm. And if anybody is noticing or looking at me, well, some of them will be thinking, they'll be like how I used to be. I wish I was brave enough to get up and join in. Or if they are thinking anything negative, well, that's on them and that's their mindset and that's yeah. a shame for them. I mean, I've seen you dance at your uh, woman's night. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you dance like I do. You dance with your soul. Yeah. You know? Just throw my body around and just yeah, feel you, the music. But it, I think people love, actually, I think when people see other people dance like that, it gives them the freedom as well mm -hmm. to be able to move. Because, you know, when, when you dance and when I dance, the world just falls away and, and you're free, aren't you? It's Absolutely. And that's why I did those ladies' dance. It was a lot of work, but it was just mm. to get people connecting to their bodies, connecting to community, connecting to the music and giving them permission of, do you know what, if you like to dance, this is okay. There's going to be nobody here hounding you or intimidating you. There's going to be nobody here saying anything mean to you. Yeah. You don't need to be self-conscious. You can do whatever you want here, really, as long as you're not harming anybody else. And it was lovely, wasn't it, to see all of those yeah. individuals dancing? And it must be like that for you when you did that show with all of those different yeah, people. Well, I mean, my show that I did um, a couple of weeks ago, we had women of every age, every size, you know, mm -hmm. just because obviously in belly dance you show your belly. Yeah. And they've all got their, their bodies out. Mm -hmm. There's no self-consciousness. There's stretch marks and... All sorts and nobody cares, yes. you know, because it's all just about looking at the dancing. Mm -hmm. And it is very empowering as a woman because you never see um, all different shapes and sizes of bodies to do. It's not being represented. It, no. I think a lot of us have been made to feel ashamed in some way, once again, mm -hmm. of the bodies that we have, that they're not good enough or there's something wrong with them if they don't fit what the media really have told us is the ideal female figure to fit into. And it's doesn't need to be like that our bodies are amazing and they should mm. be celebrated because they're what will get us around every single day they're what allow us to have our learning experiences during life yeah yeah 100 percent um i mean i um as i say i had this really bad botched operation i had to have five revision operations and every time uh in the healing process mm -hmm. i had to remind myself you know the, my body's fantastic you know even with all these scars, even with all of this, my body is amazing. And I, yeah. I still think that, you know, mm -hmm. I'm so grateful to it, you know. And I, I think that uh, mindset really helped me to heal from the operations as well. I mean, I was literally, when can I dance? <laughs> How long do I have to wait before I dance mm -hmm. again, you know? Um, and just sort of like stretching and getting the muscles mm -hmm. work because... You see people with operations and they sort of almost give up and think, oh, well, I'm broken now. Yeah. And you see them sort of gradually shrinking into themselves mm -hmm. and their posture goes bad and they, you know, in their mind, the operation caused it. But actually it's their response to the operation Absolutely. that's caused it, you know. So I very much, when I had all these operations, I was like, right, this is just a little blip in the road. <laughs> get over it. Get back up. Get out dancing again, you know. So, Amazing. Well done. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. So we're almost coming to the end. Okay. So just before we finish, have you got any final thoughts or final words that you would like to leave with our listeners that might help them on their journey? I just think, um, for me, the biggest thing that's helped me through is hope, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I think of myself in COVID, you know, I'd moved up here. I don't have a partner or children, like, completely on my own, wandering around my house like a ghost. 
but knowing that there was hope that mm-hmm. when this finished, I would go out there and meet friends. You yeah. Know? Or when I was when I was ill, and just having the hope that, um, you know, this will be over. This, mm-hmm. you know, the saying, this will pass. Yeah. You know, I think keep keep a hold of that hope. It's it's what will get you through. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been really fascinating to listen to. It's been great to be here. And thank you ever so much to our listeners. I shall speak to you again soon. Take care and bye-bye for now. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you subscribe. If you would like to find out more about the therapies that we provide and the training we offer, please visit our website, www.tranquil-awakenings.co.uk. You can also find us on social media.